This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 4th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. States looking for a bailout from the feds now face scrutiny for bad fiscal management before the outbreak. To the extent that a bailout is on the table, what might it look like? And if it's really not on the table, what are some paths forward for states that had poor management before the crisis? Jonathan Williams is chief economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. We spoke last week. As the coronavirus outbreak took hold, there was a pretty precipitous decline in economic activity. Some of that may have been driven by uh, orders of uh, governors and other uh, officials to uh, close restaurants, to close bars, to uh, telling people to essentially stay at home. Uh, so what do you make of this idea of the federal government essentially making up the gap for a lot of that lost revenue in the form of some sort of assistance or bailout? Well, first of all, I think it's important to remember that the federal government already has sent a good deal of money to states in the first three rounds of the federal packages uh, that have been passed uh, out of Congress, signed into law by President Trump, sent uh, the course of hundreds of billions of dollars to state and local governments to help make them whole and cover health care expenditures as it relates to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, of course, on top of that, you have the Federal Reserve action of liquidity, uh, as well as the uh, idea that they would buy uh, state and local debt, uh, potentially. And this is kind of an unprecedented area within monetary policy. So there's been lots of federal action already. I think there's a, a whole lot of pushback right now from a lot of the legislators that we work with uh, at ALEC to say enough is enough. Uh, we we think that states ought to govern themselves. There's going to be some very difficult days ahead in terms of balancing state budgets. Uh, but that's a prerogative of state-level government, and I think they're nervous about a federal intervention, just like we saw 10 years ago with the shovel-ready projects in the Obama era and the kind of strings that come with those dollars to the states. All right. Uh, and this isn't unprecedented in, a, in at least one way, and that is states typically have a mandate to have balanced budgets. You can so we could quibble about what that really means or whether or not it's real with respect to states' ability to borrow. Um, but to have the federal government provide a, a large cash infusion directly to state governments, does that give lie to the notion that states really can't uh, spend more than they take in? Well, I, I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, I think you have to look at, first of all, uh, federal involvement in the states does create a huge moral hazard problem of states not ending up wanting to take care of their own problems, because if they have the expectation that every time we have a financial crisis or an economic downturn, or in this case, kind of a government suppression of the economy for health reasons, uh, the states are just going to continue to overspend and overtax. And next time we get into this kind of a business cycle, uh, or some sort of a slowdown, they're going to expect the federal aid uh, to the states. And at the end of the day, just because you federalize a problem and take a problem from the state or local level to the federal level doesn't make the underlying problem go away. And of course, the underlying problem for most states, Illinois and California and New York get a lot of the attention, New Jersey, uh, is they have overspent, overtaxed, lost competitiveness as a result, and made uh, huge promises to pension systems that they have not been able to continue to fund. That fundamental dysfunction at the state level does not go away by patching it over with federal funds, unfortunately. 
Bloomberg reports Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says states that had poorly managed budgets before the COVID-19 outbreak uh, sent their economies reeling uh, should not be rescued by the federal government. Now, that brings into play the idea of state-level bankruptcy, which, as far as I know, we've never really seen. Yeah, that's right. And Secretary Mnuchin is right on point there in that states had four or five years in a row of record revenue in many cases outside of a few outliers uh, in recent years because of the strong national economy. And so there's really very little reason that there should be a budget crisis in this short term of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, there should be lots of rainy day funds uh, stocked away. I know Chris Edwards at Cato, my friend, has documented many states have done a good job in stocking away funds for rainy day, for unemployment insurance, many other things to help states get through this, what hopefully is a shorter intermediate period of declining revenue. Now, you raise an interesting question when it comes to bankruptcy. I get asked about this uh, all the time when I'm on the road talking to state lawmakers. And of course, the initial response is always there's no provision in U.S. bankruptcy law for states to go bankrupt, and there's no constitutional uh, provision for state bankruptcy. Obviously, municipal levels of government go bankrupt uh, quite often, unfortunately, with the Detroit in other examples. But um, I think to some degree, there would have to be changes, uh, at least in federal law, if not the Constitution, to even allow for that discussion of the state bankruptcy proceeding. For states that have these large obligations uh, and bankruptcy becomes an option somehow, you would think that that would wreck their bond rating, that it would require that people who have been promised benefits from the government, in particular pensioners, uh, in particular public employees who have what can be viewed as pretty strong contractual obligations to remain employed by the state, that's all. that has to be all on the table in those kinds of situations. It would be. I mean, you look at the Detroit example of how something like this played out with Judge Stephen Rhodes uh, presiding over that uh, situation. I'm a Michigan native, as you know, Caleb, so I watch that with extra uh, uh, situation on my end uh, and interest, I should say, is that everyone takes a haircut in these scenarios, uh, unfortunately, and they're all painful, whether they're investors that have put uh, investments for their retirement in bonds at the municipal level or state level bonds, whether it's the pension uh, pensioners that are expecting that payment in retirement and really state government has, in many cases, a legal uh, or at the very least a moral obligation to honoring those promises that were made, right? Uh, but in the, in the states of uh, Illinois, Let's say, where Bruce Rauner, former governor, who tried to make some headway into the hundreds of billions of dollars of unfunded pension obligations in, in that state, uh, and some of his predecessors even found that based on their Supreme Court rulings, uh, the, the hands of governors and hands of individual legislators are tied, and that uh, there was even a proposal to change future cost of living, COLA benefits for future hires in Illinois, and that was determined to be unconstitutional based on their state constitution 
constitutional uh, restrictions. So there is the argument to say that may be the only way that some of these states are able to get out from under uh, restrictions on what they can do to reform pensions. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a discussion certainly over do you cut other spending and reprioritize spending or do you raise revenue? Uh you know, to the extent that the feds are providing these funds to help states that have uh, you know, arguably done the right thing by reducing economic activity, I won't say anything about the orders necessarily, but, uh, it, you know, individuals within those states, it, to the extent that they were doing the right thing, they were reducing their economic activity. Is there a way around giving money directly into the hands of state lawmakers and governors that would have largely the same effect? Well, I mean, I think some of the things that we've already seen come from the federal government with the Federal Reserve backstop on uh, state and local debt, for instance, is something short of a cash handout to state level governments. But one of the things that I've talked about, I know that Cato scholars have talked about over the years as well, is what are some of the regulations at the federal level that we can undo during this time versus passing new laws and new regulations? This is often the inclination of, of government, obviously, in times of crisis, and some of that is warranted. But what, what are the things that we could undo? One of the things that we looked at as a federal regulation is the nearly century-old law Davis-Bacon, which is obviously dealing with prevailing wage requirements on uh, projects at the state level that receive more than $2,000 of federal support. And so my home state of Michigan and many others across the country have repealed state-level prevailing wage laws for infrastructure construction and things like school construction and highways. But the problem for those states is the minute you take federal support Court, all of a sudden, the prevailing wage laws of things like Davis-Bacon are put on top, and those extra costs could be another 15 20 25% on the ability of those states to provide infrastructure projects for their citizens. So what if the federal government, uh, what if I think the president has the ability to perhaps waive this in times of crisis, where Congress could certainly uh, analyze that opportunity? That would be the thing that would save states money without ever appropriating a check to state and local government. So I think we have to think out side of the box a little bit instead of just appropriating new money, cutting checks and letting local officials have those dollars. I think they need more flexibility in many times from the federal rules and regulations. The president, uh, for his part, suggests that the, one of the contingencies that he might like to see attached to uh, direct aid to states is uh, assuring or compelling that those states have policies in line with the president's immigration preferences. Well, and that's that's always whether you like the president's immigration preferences or not. That's always, I think, the threat. I do not. Uh, that's always the threat of federal involvement is you're going to have uh, a one-size-fits-all scenario of dollars going to the states where some need it, some don't, some want it, some don't. But at the other hand, you're going to have federal preferences attached to those dollars in many cases. And sometimes we'll like those preferences, sometimes we won't like those preferences, but many times those preferences are costly when it comes to state and local governments taking the dollars. We all remember the last time we went through this experiment through the shovel-ready projects and the Obama era. And uh, we saw the maintenance of effort requirements that came with those dollars that added uh, lots of costs at the state and local level. And those are the kind of regulations that last, unfortunately, many times longer than the actual dollars going from the feds. To the extent that states uh, 
somehow uh, a, a bankruptcy for a state is a, a possibility that would wreck the state's bond rating. It would mean that beneficiaries of state benefits like pensions, uh, like other payments, people with whom uh, the state has contracts would uh, find a lot of those things abrogated in some way. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means everybody feels some pain, as you alluded to there. And we just look at, for instance, the example from my home state in the city of Detroit, when Stephen Rhodes, the bankruptcy judge, oversaw that process, and everyone took painful haircuts as part of that. And you can expect pensioners that were uh, expecting those dollars for retirement uh, to take a reduction in many cases, which is horrible. And this is something that government really does fail individuals when it defaults in a way on those moral obligations. Uh, you're right, people that have con contracts with that level of government. And then to the issue of the debt markets, uh, you tend to think that uh, you know that may be a healthy area, not the default for saying people losing principal, but to the extent that the bond markets could then penalize states that uh, would be fiscally irresponsible and make them then have that uh, borrowing cost be higher in the future and, and then incentivize states to actually govern well and uh, and make sure that they could keep borrowing costs down. Uh, you don't see much of a spread these days when you look at state debt offerings, but I think if the bankruptcy option were on the table, you would certainly see the uh, potential purchasers of state debt require a whole lot more yield from those states that would be riskier. So what of the the claim from uh, Senator McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader uh, in my home state of Kentucky, suggesting that uh, states should consider bankruptcy if the if the primary other option uh, is a large federal bailout? Well, I think Senator McConnell is correct uh, in his uh, assertion that a federal bailout is not the right option. And I think he was using that perhaps as a way to say this is not the only option, even though the Senate Republican caucus seems to be more or less unified and not sending more dollars to state and local budgets to backfill past uh, promises, and in some cases past sins, is that there may be another option. It may require a change in federal law or the Constitution, but I think he's just saying that uh, absent a federal bailout, there are other options for state and local governments. Now, of course, I think as Caleb, you and I would probably agree, the best option is for states to reprioritize their budgets. In many cases, those states don't want to reprioritize their budgets and reopen, let's say, contract negotiations and collective bargaining agreements and things like that that have driven the cost of governance uh, far too high. But I think Senator McConnell's point is there are other options and there should be other options versus a federal bailout. But right, right. But the the state level bankruptcy is an option only to the extent that people view it as an option. And to the extent that option is relatively unprecedented, uh, it doesn't really feel like an option. I think it's more of a rhetorical argument, perhaps, that this case that uh, Senator McConnell is using. Uh, and you're right, you'd have to go back many decades to have similar discussions over state-level bankruptcies, or in the case of uh, in history, you see state-level defaults. And that would be probably more likely what we would see is uh, perhaps Illinois or Connecticut or some other state would just stop paying on its debt. And then there would have to be, obviously, much litigation over that on behalf of the bondholders. So going forward, assuming uh, a bailout is not an option and assuming that state level bankruptcy 
is not an option, what's the best path forward for states that, let's assume the median state has done okay economically, did okay during the the, the run up in the in the stock market and the the economic performance of of quite a long time now. Um, what's the best path forward for that state? Uh, it's a lot of heavy lifting, unfortunately, but that's that's the price of governance, right, at the state and local level. If you want to have autonomous states that are not wards of the federal government, they need to take care of that type of difficult business. And uh, that's what states are set up to do as sovereigns and to have the taxing and spending power that they do. And so we'll certainly be working with our ALEC members, and we encourage all states to kind of go down to the basics when it comes to crafting a priority-based budget, just like families and small businesses do every single week, is kitchen, ta- kitchen table budgeting. And uh, there's a great example that I've pointed to many times in the past uh, from Washington State uh, under a Democrat governor, Gary Locke, who went on to serve in the Obama administration as Secretary of Commerce. And in the post-9-11 recession, Washington State solved a 2.5 billion dollar budget shortfall without a dime of tax increases because they went through the process that they called priorities of government. And they looked at what are government's needs, what are the wants, what is the available revenue, what's our core functions, what's the mission statement as to state and local governments, and what are the most important things for us to fund. And then everything else will fund as we have available revenue. And if, if it can be done by Democrats in Washington state, I think it's a great model for states across the country to look at. And we've detailed it, uh, that whole case study in our Alex State Budget Reform Toolkit that's available to legislators across the country. I, I think the the coronavirus has presented uh, as put into sharp relief the uh, fact that when you take pension funds and you invest them in the stock market or in investments that are like alternative investments that are not uh, public in a sense, that in, in the times of some economic downturn, the point at which the state uh, needs to be able to ha- move revenue from one place to shore up pension funds is exactly the time that it does not have that option. And that's a great point. And as states have defined benefit plans that have more or less disappeared from the private sector over the last couple of decades, because the private sector actually follows real accounting rules, as you know, Caleb, versus state and local governments on the pension side, these defined benefit plans are either contractually uh, or statutorily, or at the very least, morally obligated to be paid out. And so for many years, states had chosen a mix of investments that would match the uh, risk of the the payout, which is it's absolutely going to be paid out at the end of the day, absent some sort of state bankruptcy proceeding like we've been talking about. But in recent years, states have been drawn to the allure of chasing high returns. And now the average assumed rate of return across state and local pension plans is still way north of 7%. And states have gone into alternative investments. And I think they're going to rue the day, for instance, in this current market that they have heavily invested in commercial real estate in a lot of cases uh, or wild 
chasing wild returns that are going to come back and absolutely uh, bite state budgets going forward. And it's a, it's a bad incentive problem, as you know, uh, like a lot of things when it comes to government policymaking and some of the financial consequences is these defined benefit plans are so underfunded. Our study annually at Alex shows $5 trillion in unfunded uh, pension obligations in the 290 or so uh, state-administered plans around the United States. Elected officials have the political incentive to get the benefits up front, make the promises, not make the payments over time without real accounting rules. There's nobody that's held account to that. And then they know that the bills come due in these defined benefit plans long after their tenure in office will be finished. And so that is the political problem of defined benefit plans. And unfortunately, as you point out, with losses in the market, it's going to exacerbate that problem. Yeah, the the backstop ultimately for states with respect to pension funds uh, is the ability to tax, and and right now that's just that's not realistic. And you look at a state like Illinois, and it's a state that's already an outlier within the region with the uh, low tax Indiana and Iowa and uh, Wisconsin and Missouri, uh, among others in, in the region. Uh, and to pay off the liabilities that Illinois has unfortunately accrued over now several decades in its defined benefit plans, you'd be talking about massive amounts of tax increases that would just not be politically feasible. So they're caught in this catch-22, and then you have their Supreme Court in Illinois ruling that you can't can't even change the colas, the cost of living increases on future employees. So they do feel like they're probably in a catch-22 in Illinois. Jonathan Williams is chief economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.